0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel, from the Knowledge Exchange Lead Mentor here, where we run online courses and online mentorship. Head on to our website, tkex.org, if you are interested in a 10-minute consultation to help you out with the transition onto telehealth. So here I am joined by Sam Spinelli, all the way from Canada. Kaluna, if I've pronounced that correctly, if not feel free to <laughs> feel free to tell me how wrong i am because um it's it's not uh, the common city that you'd hear generally when it comes no. to canada but it's close to uh our, it's close, close to vancouver is that right yep. about 4 hour drive and yep. it's got better weather than than most of canada so we've just offended all the other canadians and we've got <laughs> an idea for all the australians listening out to where the hell that is so sam yep. has been hugely influential in the social media space, in particular, Instagram, I've been following him for, for years now, and keen to dive into a few topics today. And here a little bit of the background as to um, his, his social media journey, and he's also his also physical therapist journey. So Sam, thank you so much for making. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Awesome, dude. It's, um, it, it's been a pleasure. And, and I'm, I'm keen to, to ask, the, the famous question that we ask everyone, what's your story? Uh, yeah, you
1: know I am a uh, uh, before the show st- before the show started, you made the comment of living a nomadic life and I would say that that's a pretty accurate term for anyone that doesn't know. I've traveled around a lot while I've um, ventured trying to figure out what I wanted to do in the end and uh, I started out I'm from central Canada and I pursued becoming a strength conditioning coach. I started working in professional sports and Olympic sports, working with mostly professional hockey, Olympic sport athletes and bobsled, skeletons, stuff like that for winter sports. And then uh, decided I wanted to become a physical therapist. So I traveled down to the US and I uh, opted to go to school in Massachusetts because it's a hot bud for strength conditioning. I thought it'd give me the opportunity to go and hang out with tons of cool people. So. traveled down and, uh, went to school, got them to give me a ton of different placements in, uh, different parts of the U S. So I just would drive across, go live in different places for four months at a time, uh, go meet as many people as possible and just try to have as many experiences and get to know, um, stuff that I didn't understand, get mentorships in my actual program outside of my program. And then, uh, Over time, I started to develop a bigger and bigger voice online. When I was a strength coach, I started to write blogs and make some YouTube videos and stuff like that to essentially just like share information that I thought that I had that others didn't. And it kind of like dwindled off when I first got into PT school. And then I felt very frustrated initially with my PT education and decided to then start voicing information about that. I was very fortunate that when I first got into school, I fell into Clinical Athlete, which is for anyone that doesn't know from Quinn Hennick. And I was, uh, I think I joined like the second month that it had started. So I was pretty early on with it. And I was very fortunate that within that, there's a few people that essentially took me on as like a mentee. So um, there's a guy named Derek Miles in there who was very influential and um, basically as I started to like express my frustration with school, he just like handed me tons of information and said, like, if you want to be better, this is stuff, read it, figure it out. You can always ask me questions, but, um, take it upon yourself. You can't just rely on others to teach you information. And I opted to just become engrossed in it and just read every waking minute of time that I had and, uh, started to share more and more of what I was reading and what I was learning and trying to figure out how I could combine the information I had from strength and conditioning with physical therapy. And then um, over time, it just kept evolving as I kept reading and learning more and getting more and more experience. Uh, I was very fortunate to have the exper- experience that I had as a strength coach when I went into school, because I think that's something that's not taught very well, at least in the schooling in the U.S. Um, so that helped me out a lot. And then As I started to learn more online I was able to I think make a smooth transition into being able to utilize that information in just like a different context and over time it took me into uh, graduating from school and uh, building a company called Citizen Athletics I have with a business partner Teddy Wilsey and I uh, lived in California for like a year and a half in a few different places and then my wife got pregnant we came and moved back to Canada in Kelowna and then I uh, built two in-person practices here and I have been also working online and now have built a new company called E 3 Rehab with Tony Camella and Mark Certica Cerdic- who I think you just had on and uh,
0: yeah, and then basically now we're here. So, it's me. Awesome! What, what a journey! And one of the one of the themes I I've been I picked out of that one was you seeked out uh, mentors, mm-hmm. and you you got practical experience throughout your journey. So you mentioned the physical therapy uh, degree didn't really teach you the the practical skills that you needed, and I and I'm curious if the <coughs> in terms of the strength and conditioning skills, and I'm mm-hmm. curious if also the when you had the strength and conditioning Certification, if if that was sufficient for you to feel like you had the value um, out in practice,
1: yeah. So again, my strength and conditioning education was actually pretty pretty much a similar thing as my physical therapy education. I went to school, and my actual degree is titled Bachelor of Physical Education because the university I went to, um, the kinesiology program is an extremely science based class. Uh, they don't actually do a lot of Um, stuff in resistance training or my I'm not allowed to actually do any form of education in the school system. My degree doesn't actually exist anymore. They got rid of it. Uh, So I don't know what to make of that. But during the time I took a lot of classes that were on resistance training on cardio endurance stuff. And um, it was not very good. And I was very fortunate at the same time to have a lot of mentors that were outside of my school system. I got into uh, becoming a, a pseudo strength coach when I was in high school and started to venture into more of this kind of realm. And along the way, I met a guy named Dean Somerset, who uh, actually taught me my personal training course when I was 17. And then he took me under his wing for a few years while I was trying to figure out my life and what I was going to do. I worked in the oil field when I was 16, and I did that until I was 18. And along the way, Dean basically told me to go to university. I wouldn't be much happier with that life. And uh, if it wasn't for him, I'd have no idea where I'd be. Um, Because literally the day after he told me that I went and applied for university. So, um, yeah. And then while I was in school, I had a professor in my first semester who. Uh, taught the intro to strength and conditioning, and he owned a company in uh, Edmonton, where I'm from, called Premier Strength, and they catered to professional hockey players. And I was very fortunate that within the first semester, he saw that I had like tons of knowledge in the area. I basically like knew how to coach already to some level, and he took me under his wing, made me a teaching assistant for my first semester, and then he hired me on and brought me in uh, as a first-year university student to his team. And when I was, uh, the first year I went and worked for him, I was actually working alongside people that were doing their fourth year practicums. And, uh, by the time I had finished, then he actually brought me on to be the head coach the second year. And then I was actually teaching people their practicums the second year. And then when I did my own practicum with him, he just got to not pay me for four months. So, um, you know I was uh, I would say like looking back I actually just had a practicum student from the same school come and he did the same program different title but the same courses he went through and he came and he's with me for uh, three and a half months and during that time the information that he had was definitely a little bit better than what I had when I went through it but there were still significant flaws in mostly the rationale and reasoning behind choices and basically like the entire time that we're doing things that was what we we centered on like why would you choose to implement these things how can you make decisions and then also uh from a standpoint of when you're actually working with people how can you do this thing called reactive coaching i think a lot of times at least if you're like in the strength conditioning world you have a set plan you're going to stick with that plan the program is the program you don't deviate that's not reality especially when we start to get into like the aspect of considering the psychosocial in strength and conditioning which has been relatively ignored and how can you actually utilize that information while just in the strength and conditioning setting because he wasn't uh he was you know just a kinesiology student so I wasn't really getting deep into pain or anything with that and um so yeah we worked on a lot of that stuff and i think it's very important concepts that are not uh, discussed or shared in that, and uh, the same thing in physical therapy, I think that a lot of people we it's definitely a little bit more in the side of reactive without actually knowing it because inherently you don't know how someone's going to respond in some ways with pain, but a lot of i think pt struggle in how to manage when someone doesn't fit into the the scope or the little picture of what
0: you were uh, envisioning that they should be. So, yeah. And the, the, the reactive coaching is kind of, some people call it the art or the ability to adapt <coughs> according to the, the, the athlete. The, can you explain a little more about that concept? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, so I would say yes to a degree. Um, so the simplest things of, you know, like you have someone... Um, I can share a blog with you later my student actually wrote a a wonderful uh, two-part blog on this because he found it so uh, interesting and not something that he'd ever had experience with Um, so he had come from this that university setting being very comfortable with things of like squats deadlifts but not necessarily a wide range of different movements and for him it was an interesting idea of when I put them into a performance setting where it wasn't powerlifters, It was people that were, you know, other a, um, a little bit older population that were training at the facility because they really enjoyed being athletic in their mind. And then the other population was people that are high level athletes, people that are Olympians, people that are national champions in different sports, none of which are powerlifting or weightlifting. And, um, you know, in that setting, it, the, how much you squat does not matter and for him it was very interesting going from pretty much like exclusively working with people that were entirely devoted to those movements and now they they don't matter and while you could pick a squat someone's goal doesn't uh, necessarily dictate the squat being the choice then we start to get into like again why do you choose these movements and then how can i pick a movement that's going to match the profile of the athlete and get the desired outcome and then when we get into the reactive side of things, if that athlete comes in, they're not feeling very good and they're just struggling and performing the movement that you picked. How can I adjust things to be able to allow that person to still get an effective workout? And you know, like right now for a lot of people, um, the idea of like just quote unquote managing workload and just having them work at a lower intensity or lower volume is a very common rationale. I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, but being able to find some option of a movement that still gets the desired effect if they're not able to perform it for different reasons. And like, uh, when the student was here, he was working with a younger athlete who, the um, how it worked at the facility was my student would work under all of the coaches and just like rotate between. And the coach he was working under for this session had decided that this youth athlete was going to be working on deadlifting and, the uh, the kid was like 13 years old. Couldn't figure out how to do a hip hinge. And he had spent like 20 minutes trying to figure it out. The kid is going to come and train for 45 minutes. And he's like, I don't know what to do. I was like, okay, well, why does the coach want him to do a deadlift? He's like, well, probably get his glutes stronger or something. I was like, yeah, that's probably the rationale. So find a different movement that still does that, that the kid can figure out. So then he took him onto the ground and did a glute bridge with him. And, you know, he's able to figure it out very easily. And he started loading him up with a barbell and the task was achieved. But in his mind, he had like no solution. He was just spending four, like he had spent over 20 minutes trying to figure out how to teach this kid to do a deadlift. And it didn't matter if the kid learned the deadlift. It's not the purpose. And being able to react to the situation or if your athlete is in pain, how can I react and adjust the movements so that we're able to still get the desired outcome without having them struggle because in the context of like strength and conditioning, it's not the coach's decision. If the person should push through pain, it's about figuring out a way for them to be able to still continue with as little pain as possible.
0: Um, yeah. So that's somewhat into the idea of reactive coaching. That's great. And uh, we'll, we'll share that blog on in the show notes, the, the idea of, of being able to adapt to the, the task and, and the athlete, like kind of similar to dynamic systems theory that they, yeah. they teach in clinical athletes that's useful from uh the perspective of of i think both a clinician if, if they need to adapt to a patient's situation or their movement patterns in whatever rehab exercise they're doing as well as the the athlete with their individual structure and and the task mm-hmm. and that that key question is asking why but asking mm-hmm. asking why the what's the purpose of this exercise really great um, so Moving on to, to how people generally know you outside of, of North America, it seems. So through Instagram, the strength therapist, uh, firstly, great handle and we're all jealous. (laughs) Secondly, what's, you can, you can take it. I don't actually use that name anymore. So, Oh really, there's been an an update. I still have
1: it on Facebook,
0: but I'm not actually sure how to change it. So, okay, cool. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Well, it will probably be taken by the the end of this podcast, the time it's, it's published. <laughs> so, what what is speaking of of the the purpose and the reasons why someone mm-hmm. is persuaded? Exercise. What was your your reason behind starting off in the social media game?
1: Yeah, when I uh, when I was in PT school, I had a different um, Instagram account, and or my first started. I was uh, I had a training company that I had been with, and I'd been sharing information, and I left that company and. I transitioned into trying to, like figure out my place in the world as a strength coach who was then becoming a physical therapist and at the time there was a lot of different people that were like not going by their own name and seemed to make sense then to figure out some sort of thing that was like representative of who I was and the strength therapist seemed to make sense and it was kind of like at my early time in the in the game I was very heavily biased towards strength so then it uh, yeah, just fit me, fit me
0: really well. So it's it's Sam Spillett, Spinelli now, and uh, yeah, Doctor Sam Spinelli. Yeah, awesome, great, and yeah. So so you got in there initially to to kind of post what you have been learning and to help and reach a wider mm-hmm. audience, and also it's been a useful tool for you moving forward as a networking tool to reach out to to your your business partners as well, I imagine.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's been huge for that. Yeah, like early on when I was still in PT school, I'd actually just like read a research article, condense the article into a post and then make it. And then it just like gradually built into maybe I was doing like a systematic review or I was doing multiple articles or doing just like a general topic and just progressively increasing in format. And then yeah, it's turned into this and then I was able to meet multiple business partners through it. And it's been a fantastic uh, thing. Yeah, meeting tons of people. I've been very fortunate that um, people enjoy whatever I make, I guess. And because of that, I've been able to get a large following. And that makes it a lot easier to be able to reach out to people
0: to then meet and connect with. And you said people enjoy what you make. They find value in it. You didn't say, I was out to get 100K likes in in three months? (laughs)
1: No. (laughs) Yeah, it's actually really funny because, you know, like... Uh, I went to, to c s m which I don't know if you know what that is um c s m is the combined sections meeting which is the biggest physical therapy conference in uh north america and I went to it and you know uh being Teddy and I were both at it, and um uh, we were kind of like celebrities at it, which is a very funny idea and we would have people come up and be like, How do I get a hundred thousand followers and it's like i don't know i I don't have any secrets for you, man. Like, the first year that I started posting on the Strength Therapist, I went from zero followers to like five thousand or something. It wasn't it wasn't anything special, and then I just kept doing it, kept doing it, kept doing it. I think I went like from year two, five thousand to thirty thousand, and then like year three, it was like thirty to one hundred thirty thousand, and just gradually more and more since. So. I don't have any secret strategies. It's just like I made content that I just thought I would enjoy. And I I tried to share with people that in in similar positions early on, I was in clinical athlete and I was a clinical athlete ambassador. And I would just like make content from the clinical athlete forum from research that I was reading and share it with other people that were in the same situation. It was was just like a a good way to
0: connect with people. And it just continued to expand off that. And you also do, and you have been doing online training during this time, and they've probably been able to complement each other. So, could you tell us a little bit more about?
1: Yeah, uh, I don't use any of my posts in the training format. So, even before I became a physical therapist or any of this stuff happened, I was doing um, online coaching when back when I lived in Edmonton, I would work with people and I would do at the time it was just called distance coaching. So I would meet with someone once a month and we would go over their program and go through everything. They would go and crush it. and I meet up with them again. And, um, then when I moved away from Edmonton, I just transitioned those same people to where I would send them their program. We would meet on Skype and I would explain everything to them and then they would just keep doing it. And, um, I was very fortunate that when I had moved from Edmonton to the US, I had coached a few national champions in powerlifting and weightlifting. And so then from that, I had lots of people that wanted to work with me and they was able to just transition in that. And then from those people, I started to probably not appropriately work with them when they had injuries and pain. And that just progressively transitioned into me, like figuring out how to do, essentially do telehealth and um it carried on to where i am now where you know i see probably i guess currently in the pandemic i see all my patients online but before
0: it i saw probably about a third of the people that i worked with online anyways and there's some uh some people having a hesitation to transition onto telehealth a few of the rebuttals are it's not as valuable they feel like they don't give the same service and yeah you and i probably both agree it's that's bs so i'd love to hear your take so i actually love telehealth <laughs> um so i guess like
1: my first thing is i'm a big i'm a big fan of promoting education exercise and self-efficacy and i think that when you're in a position of seeing someone in person it's very easy to get into a fixer role very easy to be the leader and uh, enable people. Whereas in contrast, when you're doing things online, if someone is going to be successful with it, they really have to take it into their own hands. And for me, I think one aspect that I'm inherently biased with is that, you know, people have seeked me out. Usually it's not like they were just like sent over to me because they contacted for telehealth. Like people contacted me because they had heard that I do great work online or they followed me and they were curious if I'd be able to help them. And I have this inherent bias of that. Those are probably people that are a little bit more motivated and a little bit more like in a stage of readiness to take action. And for me, it's gone amazing. Like I work with tons of people that are in very uh, challenging situations who have had very frustrating rehab experiences who have been in very complicated medical situations and they get better. And they, uh, if they, the term better is definitely an interesting one, but they, they make progress towards their goals. And that's uh, for me, it's, it, it's fantastic. I really enjoy it. And it also costs way less. Uh, I don't know. It really depends how you offer it, I guess. But for me, I work with people mostly via email. I don't meet up with everyone. I don't. I will meet up with people on Skype or Zoom or something, depending upon the need. But the majority of the time, when we're interacting, it's just by email or text message, and people seem to really enjoy that, and it gives them some reassurance for different stuff. Like I've got numerous athletes who'll send me a message when. Like maybe they're. I've got one person who had been in um, persistent pain across multiple regions for a very long time, and he had been a very high uh, high level athlete before, and he just suffered very inappropriate care for a very long time. And he'll have he'll do um, you know his regular exercise routine, and something will pop up where you know like he notices that he has more pain in the region than usual, and he'll message me about it, and I'll say okay, calm down, take a second, breathe. And then I get to work him down from it very easily. Whereas like, um, and over time, he's been able to learn how to do that for himself. And in that setting, like he pays me a flat fee per month and he's able to message me and I get back to him. And whereas, you know, before the, the amount of treatment that he gets from me uh, for the rate is incredibly low, because like before he was going to see someone for three times a week and he had seen them in a month, like twelve times, and I don't know what it costs in Australia, but he, like here locally, you're looking at around like seventy to eighty dollars an appointment, so you're looking at like well over eight hundred dollars in a month, whereas I charge considerably less than that, and um, so for a lot of people, I think it can be a great service, but again it it's really not for everyone. i readily really acknowledge that. There are going to be people, people who struggle with that form of education, people that struggle with taking it into their own hands. But I think that a lot of those people would honestly struggle in actual uh, in-person therapy as well. It just maybe wouldn't get acknowledged. That's a huge thing. And I think that if anyone actually re- research, they would probably notice that too.
0: Absolutely. There's, there's more than one person in the, in the party. There's the, the patient, the athlete, and the clinician. And I, I love, I love the, the ongoing communication so people can reach out at any time, they can have that uh, coaching experience throughout the whole month, rather than having to mm-hmm. wait, you know, next week until they, they see the coach in person. And that's a flat yeah. fee you mentioned for, per month. And is there, um just curious- That's how fees, I do uh, it, yeah. Kind of way of, of, of doing it. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's an ongoing uh, payment per month?
1: Well, yeah, so uh,
0: I just charge them by the month
1: and then people can say when they're done. I'd say that it's really common for someone to be with me for probably two months and then we're usually done. Um, most of the time, like my goal is to be able to figure out strategies for them to be successful by themselves without me as soon as possible. Sometimes that is a month. Sometimes people don't, uh, ever after, afterwards need anything. We figure out solutions for them, whether that is a routine that they're going to follow for exercise, that's going to be like, um, directing them to their goal. And then sometimes, uh, it's just not the right path and they need a little bit longer, just like you would in person. Like maybe you don't know what they're going to respond well to. I'm not magical. I don't know secrets. Like I just make a best guess and we see what happens. Uh, the bit, and sometimes it takes a lot longer. Uh, I, the person I just mentioned before, like that person who had been in pain for a very long time, he had like some very substantial issues that we had to address and he was very open about it. And, um, we worked together for about six months, which is, uh, for me, one of the longest cases I've had. And then, uh, for some people, what we transition out of being like more in the rehab side of things to then transitioning to a more of a performance side of things. So in some cases I see people for even longer, it just might be now we're not discussing pain as much. Now we're discussing how can we maximize your ability to do, you know your one mile time or your squad performance or whatever else it may be. Yeah,
0: all the fun stuff, all the performance goals. You can now. Focus I don't know, on. man. I don't. I like. I like talking with people about pain. You're you're a unique one Sam, <laughs> when it comes to the layperson. But yeah, that's that's really cool and, and it's a having that um, that month by month service allows them to or just facilitates the coaching aspect where they can communicate to you anytime. And builds that therapeutic alliance, even though you're not seeing them in person.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And, you know, like for me, I have a 24
1: hour policy where if someone sends me an email, I will respond within 24 hours, uh, barring like a crazy circumstance. And for a lot of people, I think that that's a huge thing that they appreciate because, like, if you had to wait until your next appointment to be able to converse with someone about something, it could be something small that takes like one second and totally addresses their whole situation and reframes how they're able to manage something entirely. I've had situations where I've had a person that's in back pain and they were very scared of the need to go to the hospital. And it was just like me telling them to calm down. Do you have any of these things? No. Okay. Then it'll be fine. wait a few days and we'll see national course of history improve. And not only did like that person was seeing me regardless, uh, seeing me regardless and that then also changed the course of them going to the hospital what will maybe occur from that and also the cost associated with that for the healthcare system so i like it but again um I've, I've had situations where it was not appropriate for the person and we had to have a discussion where they needed to find someone in person
0: and um yeah yeah awesome it's so obviously pros and cons to, to the system. It's, it's just a great system to to promote nowadays as more and more people are getting into, into telehealth. Yeah. I think the only problem is that like, there's a lot of people that probably shouldn't be practicing by telehealth. <laughs> um,
1: yeah. Like if you don't know how, if you're not able to understand how to adjust exercises, how to select exercises, how to uh, cue and coach exercises, if you're not able to do a lot of those things, like, You can't rely on just manual, uh, manual techniques right now. You can't rely on dry needling someone like it's not going to be an option. And if you have no idea what the hell you're doing with exercise, you're screwed. If you don't know how to educate a person about, um, lifestyle factors or behavioral modification or any of that stuff, it is not the right thing for you. Like when I work with people, I have a, I have a, um, a template of a program. It doesn't have like exercise or anything. It's just a laid out, um, Google sheet. And in it, there's different sections where we lay out, what is your behavioral goal for this week? And we have a conversation about it, things that they're going to try to address. What is your lifestyle goal for the week? And we go through and trying to figure out these different things for that. Cause there are things that I realize the literature points to very strongly, but if you don't have that kind of stuff with most, pay, um, if you don't bring up that kind of stuff with a lot of people, you're probably doing nothing more than just like natural history in a
0: lot of cases. And, i don't consider that successful rehab personally they might say it worked but for for very different reasons so yeah so having that um the more the coaching aspect is is really useful and and now's the time if you if people don't know how to use those uh techniques and concepts to to upskill right the constraint is there in the environment Mm -hmm. (laughs) i I wanted to go through as well the the your journey over the past few years i imagine Mm -hmm. Some of your posts from four years ago might be a little bit different to your posts now. So, how has Definitely. your journey been? And what what kind of uh, changes have you implemented?
1: Well, when I first went to PT school, I thought that I was going to school so that I could learn manual therapy and learn the secrets of the gurus and figure out all the solutions to everything that. I didn't know and learn the mysticism of different three-letter systems, and didn't turn out that way. <laughs> I quickly realized that that was a lot of bullshit, and uh, as again, uh, the mentors I had were the ones that fortunately I met at the right time and just coincided very beautifully. And just progressively, I just changed my view that I'm not a big fan of those things, and I realized why. Um, different options of like education and exercise can be so powerful for people. And I shifted towards having a very big emphasis uh, to strength and its beneficial side of things, which I still think is valuable, but I I viewed it under a different lens. And uh, I have shifted away from the idea that strength is inherently a required thing to address and Progressively, I then transitioned to more like the idea of load management, capacity and tolerance being so relevant. And now I've shifted away from those as much and starting to like just generally be unsure of a lot of things. Um, Really big right now into trying to understand more of the conceptual ideas behind like Bayesian modeling, um, the empathetic model. Yeah, some of the more like psychosocial stuff, and still understanding how we can impact that within education and still exercise, just under a different usage, and then trying to figure out more things how I can be more successful with patients from a adherence standpoint, from a changing locus of control, changing behavioral modifications, um, implementing lifestyle factor. Improvements and alterations to support these people. So, yeah, just like um, thought that manual therapy was the bee's knees, thought it was shit. See that it has a time and place. That time and place is not very much. Um, and now I really think that we're in a very interesting state of healthcare, very interesting state of the rehab side of things.
0: And it'll be interesting to see where it goes in the next few years. Yes, it's awesome. So you had stages of enlightenment as um, I had a conversation with Zach Gabor and we, we talked about uh-huh. the stages of wokeness. So you've been increasing yeah. each uh, each stage as you go along and you're always learning. It's such a great example to to hear one of the you know influencers out out there still still learning to this day. And you mentioned the the passive therapy, you had the kind of shift in the idea of what, how it's, um, what, it, what its place was. And nowadays, so say before the pandemic or uh, we're, we're mm-hmm. talking, if people can still have more in-service, uh, in, in-person services, mm-hmm. how would, what, what would be your stance on, on when it is appropriate to use passive therapies in general? Tough question. Well, I
1: feel, again, biased because I've shifted over. Like when I was living in the U.S. about a year ago, Um, I used 0% manual therapy in my treatments, like literally since I had been a a loud um, sole clinician, I have never once used manual therapy and it's probably uh, surprising to a lot of people and I had patients who loved me. I had uh, the company I worked for actually tracked outcomes to a very high degree And I had some of the highest outcomes out of any clinician in the company. Uh, And this was a national wide company. So a few thousand clinicians and I was in the top 3%. And I never used manual techniques. So Um, I was very biased. And then when I moved here, I transitioned to a different setting. So when I was in the U.S., I worked with primarily people that were either extremely sick or more like general population people. Not a ton of extremely high level athletes. And now that I work with a lot of people who are very high level athletes, I think that manual therapy fits within the scope of some of that more when we're discussing like your average, I feel bad calling this, but your average person, the general population, someone who's not trying to achieve like a crazy outrageous goal. Most of the time we need to find ways for them to be, you know, better internal locus of control, Uh, higher self-efficacy, learn how to not catastrophize so much, be able to just like promote general physical wellness, be able to, uh, improve their sleep quality, these different like lifestyle factors. Then when you're discussing the context of improving someone's ability to have the fastest one mile time that's ever existed, someone to be able to have the fastest 160 kilometer bike that's ever been done. It gets into a little bit of a different conversation, I think, um, because as much as my bias is that manual therapy possibly could have an impact on shifting someone away from an internal locus of control to an external locus of control, I don't necessarily have actual evidence that supports that stance. It's inherently that when we look at the research on what changes someone from external to internal, we see that things that the person can do themselves encourages that. And so then manual therapy is obviously not going to do that. It would possibly do the opposite. But when I have someone like a very high successful athlete who is already internally uh, driven and has an outrageous internal locus control, very high self-efficacy, essentially everything that you'd want to uh, devote to that person and that they have great sleep and they have great nutrition, they have everything that you would want and desire. And they have the funds available to them to then just try and add any little piece that they can to the pie. Maybe manual manual therapy fits in there because at the end of the day, there is research that encourages that manual therapy might have a benefit there. Um, and I try to acknowledge my biases that I think that inherently I think manual therapy is unnecessary, but I definitely can see where it would fit in them in in a place like that. I don't know if you're aware of a company called Altus. Um, they're a track and field company and they work exclusively with some of the highest athletes in the world in track and field and they utilize manual therapy as an adjunct to allow the athletes, not, not for pain management to my understanding, like they might occasionally, but it's on their regular ongoing um, training stuff. They'll use massage and some other mobilization techniques just to allow these people to repeat sessions at a higher degree, repeat performance. And at the end of the day, like research does show that they can do those things. So then it's like, yeah, maybe it fits in there. Um, so like in my current in-person practice, I work out of two gyms. Uh, the one gym I see people pretty much exclusively just for pain, and we just figure out modifications to their activities, figure out behavioral modifications, lifestyle stuff. I usually see them once and then never again. Uh, I do a follow up and just check like a email or a phone call follow up. I don't meet them again usually. And if they, uh, I usually follow with people two weeks out, and if they say that they have concern or anything, they'll have a second appointment most of the time it's one and done and people are very happy because they also go to that gym I see them and I know that they're good in contrast the other gym that I work at is a performance gym where there are people that are chasing these goals and I work with the coaches there where we ensure that they have a great program. The coaches are fantastic and they give me a lot of say. And if I say that someone should do a different exercise, they will just switch it instantly. And, um, you know, like when people join the gym, they come through and we do an evaluation as a part of their holistic management. And that way I'm able to give more context to the decision making and programming. And along that, most of these people don't actively have pain, but they are still interested in trying to have the highest level of performance. So I don't plan to treat many people. Uh, So most of the time I just defer them to a massage therapist I know locally and you know, they'll go and they have some massage a few times a week if they have that kind of money. And uh, sometimes the people are very persistent. They want to see me. So then we figure out something for like, a 10 or 15 minute appointment where I will just do a s- short treatment and something that will hopefully have a beneficial aspect. Like if someone is going to be doing you know, sprinting, we might be doing something to allow them to have a higher engagement in hip extension activity, but it's, it's very minimal and I try to only do it in the performance setting personally. So that's uh that's where I'm currently at with manual therapy.
0: Perhaps one of the takeaways is it's, after all the big rocks are are in place which is in those settings in the performance settings where they're going through their training program programming load management other recovery strategies sleep nutrition they have the funds they perhaps want to do whatever it takes to to get that performance gain that one percent difference in that case it make it makes sense to do do things that perhaps are less invasive. So perhaps rather than needling, perhaps rather than cupping, mm-hmm. having um the the power of human touch in that context yeah. with their expectations, more of the biopsychosocial elements of manual therapy to deliver yep. that that 1% difference for them. Exactly. And within that,
1: like within what you just said there, like the, the power of touch and all these kinds of things, like when I'm working with the people, I don't do dry needling, I don't do cupping, I didn't do anything other than essentially some effleurage (laughs) and uh it's it's the conversation with those people that one thing i consider is if i wasn't doing this and it's you know like this this person this person is going to seek out someone else especially if i if i readily acknowledge that it's beneficial and uh and if i can if i can refer them to someone else for uh the treatments of it like I have two massage therapists in town that I send people to and, you know, like they're great. I know that they're not saying things that are concerning. And that's one thing for me is that when I'm working with these people, I know the education I'm providing around the treatment that I'm doing. And I'm not telling them that we're getting rid of a trigger point so that they can then be more explosive or something like that. It's like, yeah, we're just helping you calm down and relax and get more comfortable so that you're able to then do the activity to a better degree. And most of the time I just have people put on their ear pod, pods and they just play some soft, calm music. And then we're done in five, 10 minutes and they go out and they crush it. And
0: I'd sooner see that than something different. That's it. And it's not related to uh, rehab or their pain per okay. se. It's... Awesome. I wanted to touch on the, the, one of the big rocks and, uh, your biased big rock the strength and conditioning principles when it comes to yeah. to treating patients with within a clinical setting uh there are a plethora of benefits for strength and conditioning what are some of the those benefits and and how do you apply the i guess bridging the gap between the snc coaching hat coaching role and principles mm-hmm. into uh dealing with working with patients experiencing pain
1: So you've had tons of people on this podcast. Um, I'm sure they've well elaborated into the context that pain is a very complicated thing. It's very hard to realize what is actually having a beneficial impact on it. I don't know how much some of this stuff matters. I constantly question it. In one way, I think that if we utilize good strength and conditioning, It will provide us with greater variability to have different movement solutions when we need them. So if I reduce the constraints around the task, not by changing the task, but by providing the individual with more options, then it can be, number one, if someone is, for instance, let's say having a very reactive Achilles tendon at the moment and they have more ways to complete a task, they can hopefully take off some stress in that situation so that it is less irritable. If they don't have any ability to do that because the only option that they have is to load their calf because they don't, like, let's say this is um, a person who doesn't have good hip extension in running and they are very heavily dominant in utilizing their calf to be able to produce horizontal propulsion then they're not going to be able to do that. But if I'm able to get a, a much stronger glute, much stronger hamstring to be able to create some forward propulsion and it's able to take some stress off their Achilles, if I think that's the right thing is a different conversation, but at least it provides them with a different option. It is able to change the constraints within the demands. And that's how I generally view it. It's also in you know some cases like person has um acl revision and we are now trying to develop a person who is more robust and able to handle the demands of the future tasks and we need to have sufficiently strong um, knee extension strength sufficiently strong hip abduction and external rotation strength all these different characteristics and strength conditioning principles are going to be what allows me to appropriately do that knowing that i need to achieve effective reps knowing that i need to achieve a sufficient volume own that I need to achieve certain rates of force, force development so that they're able to manage the tasks in the future when they're needed. Um, I think a lot of that stuff in the classic physical therapy sense is not necessarily considered as
0: well. Awesome so, so about the demands of the task that they're getting back into the demand of the sport their state of capacity at the moment so how their their injury their and to catalyze some of the tissue healing and that process to mm-hmm. get them from where they are currently to a high performing or even just a general daily functioning um, yeah. capacity.
1: Yeah, like in the context of, let's say, shoulder pain, um, there's a lot of ways that you can go around working on it. But if we're considering that exercise is the right option, you know, like if someone has pain with reaching overhead, I could just say, well, we'll just keep loading it and progressively build capacity and tolerance and that might be an option or maybe I utilize a intervention if the person doesn't have adequate thoracic extension and rotation to then provide them with more options so that they reduce how much they're directly loading on you know like their supraspinatus or whatever other structures and it gives them more ways to offload that stress so that they're able to get the the task achieved still. Um, I would say that Possibly um, the movement variability option is probably going to be able to happen sooner than the capacity and tolerance. If we're looking at legitimately changing muscular tissue, um, but capacity and tolerance is dictated by a lot more than just muscular tissue. It's
0: biopsychosocial in the process. They're, they're dealing with the yeah. feared activity. They're getting to some graded exposure regardless. So it's a whole mesh, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, I'm working on a course right now. I'm doing it with um, uh, Zach Gabor is a part of it. And Steph Allen is a part of it, uh, his girlfriend. And then um, there's a few of us that are all working for my alma mater. And we're creating a, uh, a short course on implementing strength and conditioning principles in rehab. And um, as we're creating the course, my sections are essentially on what we're outlining right now. And as I've been looking into more and more of the research on it, it's very interesting to see like the, the associate the association on some of these things of how you know, like fear avoidance changes often with um, uh, when someone increases in strength, we see a change in fear avoidance. Is it a change necessarily um, because the person is stronger? Is the person able to produce more force because they have less fear? I don't know, it's hard to say, but because the person was able to go through the act of doing resistance training, they are now able to produce more force and they have less fear, I know that. And there's like a lot of very interesting stuff where we see um, changes in psychosocial factors from doing these things like improved self-efficacy, improved internal locus of control, and all the things that we would generally desire and they just, it's hard to say that they
0: happen innately, but they do happen when we do the, the task so it's my bias And it, and it helps people and there it improves their self efficacy in the process so win win mm-hmm. uh, and yep. I wanted to touch on another course and a quick shout out to uh, your your set, your webinar rather and, and it's also a course in clinical athlete uh, on yep. uh, valgus and and um, squats so in one mm-hmm. of the one of the concepts uh, out of that and, and one of the things we see on at least I come across on social media is there's the, if I were to dichotomize it, the motor control camp where we're looking at, you know, making sure that everyone's technique is efficient and we're not getting into, um, I guess, riskier, more um, positions for the ACL, especially with landing. And then there's the other camp that are like, you know, fuck it, let's just improve capacity and, and, you know, create monsters and just, they're going to get into that position anyway. So might as well prepare them as much as possible. And I imagine there's probably some nuance to it. So what, what's your take on, on, the, um, on the Valgus? Should we cue it out every time or can we progressively strengthen it?
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one. So like the first thing is when we say Valgus, what is the context that we're discussing? because in in that uh, course that i made for a clinical athlete valgus is not always demonstrated to be bad so like primarily people freak out about valgus because of concern of like the acl but we see that pretty much the only time that it's highly tensioned is from like zero to 30 degrees of knee flexion uh, maybe a little bit around 90 degrees but generally the, that top range and then um, usually we see incidents of valgus occur with uh, deceleration activities not acceleration activities at least not um, sorry we see valgus occur during acceleration based activities but we don't see injuries to the acl during those times like for instance you can see pictures of usain bolt sprinting and he has a crap ton of valgus occur while he's sprinting and he's not blown out his acl and it's not that i think he has an incredibly robust acl it's just like it's a different context where we're not necessarily directing that force into the ACL. Um, so the first thing is like the conversation about when does valgus matter? And then the second part would be, okay, can we actually change it? And that's another thing that I go into the, uh, in that on, and I probably need to do an updated version of it. Cause I think I did that like two and a half years ago, but there. Is mostly research looking at like how can we impact um, valgus from different standpoints of interventions like motor control strengthening um, interventions like putting band around your knees and different stuff. And most of the time, if you can change it, it's usually when someone is actively thinking about changing it. So you have them do a land, and they try to not let their knees fall in. But then you have them perform a task at a higher level that they're not able to actively think about and they just they react and it goes away and they repeat the normal action. Usually when we see it actually change is if they have a change in, in the constraints and they are now able to not need to go into valgus because we have to consider like why people go into valgus. And it's for a few different factors. Um, most of the time, people consider like going into values because you have weak glutes or internal or external rotators or something like that. But another factor that people often don't consider is like knee extension. When we um, challenge your knee extensors, if you internally rotate, it actually reduces the moment arm for them and requires less demand on them. As well, when you internally rotate, you have a um, typically. Encouraged posterior weight shift, which again, offloads how much challenge is going to be to the knee extensors. And so these factors combine place less demand on your quads. Well, if you see a lot of people who increase the strength of their quads, they usually will produce less and less valgus when landing. And that says like a very generalized statement. It's not like a guarantee by any means. You can just see like RG3. Obviously there's the classic picture of him. Like uh, you, I don't know if you know, he's an American football player and there's a classic picture of him at the combine. He has tons of valgus and he blows out his ACL in like the next season. So yes, that happens. But as a general thing, it's, um, I think like we can generally see that people that have greater amounts of knee extension strength are probably more comfortable going into a, a knee flexed position. And so then they are inherently going to be less likely to go into that position because they have a one less constraint encouraging them to do that. But I have no strong research to support that statement. I will say (laughs) that is heavily biomechanically based. Um, There's some stuff pointing to that, but at the end of the day, like all of this stuff about motor control, cueing, it basically doesn't support a lot of ability to change that, but we do see the the opposite trend. So I think the hard thing is that if you never coach them on it, they will probably never change it. Um, if you coach them a lot on it, you waste time. Um, if you coach them inappropriately, you probably put them at risk. So no, it's like a complicated one, at the end of the day, because you don't want to start telling people that, you know, if your knee falls in, you're going to blow your ACL. Like that's inherently not a good idea, but it's probably not great if someone is unaware that we want to try and change it. So then we should probably cue it like, okay, we want your knees to be in line with your toes to have greater, you know, force absorption to then transfer over into a better cut. Okay, cool. That's probably better language. Now how often do I actually tell the person that? Well, I don't, I don't know. Um, Like when I'm at the performance gym here in town, I've had a lecture with all the coaches about the terminology that they use and how they converse with the athletes and they cue them a lot more than if I was doing it. And uh, my side of things is like, I really don't think that when shit hits the fan, when someone is trying hard to do something that they're going to have this reflexive action to push their knees out. I don't think it's going to occur. Um, whereas if I think that if I do a good job of getting the athlete strong and robust and intelligent ways, then it will hopefully transfer to where they utilize a strategy that is going to be more advantageous for them. Because at the end of the day, going into valgus, if we're just talking about deceleration is not highly beneficial, but if we start to talk about, you know, I, that point I just made about when you land and then go into a cut, it might be to your advantage to go into valgus. That like you're able to, like, if you're trying to plant on your right leg as you decelerate to then cut left, it might be to your advantage to go into valgus. Um, the biggest thing is like, does your athlete have sufficient ability to control a safe level of valgus? And so, like, let me keep into the context of like how much can I impact these things? I don't think that we really benefit from training someone into valgus to a high degree. Uh, like, uh, I don't think that the tissues around that region are going to be highly adaptable. I don't think that your ACL is gonna, like, if you try to purposefully strain your ACL, I don't think it's going to start to get more yoked. I don't think that you're going to get a big badass MCL. I don't think any of those things are going to happen. Um, so like figure out strategies to strengthen your quads, figure out strategies to strengthen the hip external rotators and all that kind of stuff like that's probably beneficial. But um, so I think I'm somewhere in between the two camps with a bit more bias
0: towards get them strong and robust. Having that comprehensive capacity in, in the joints will be a pre- protective regardless yeah. of, of whether you go, you know, the extreme route of one end or the other.
1: Well, yeah. So, and then it comes into the context, like we discussed earlier, the strength and conditioning side of things, because like, you know, number one, you need to have sufficient strength Two, can you prepare, utilize that strength fast enough because it's great if you are strong, but you know, most ACL tears occur in a fraction of a second. So can you have sufficient, uh, uh rate to be able to slow down and decelerate fast enough so that you don't push yourself into that position? And then also do you have the technical awareness of being able to um, utilize it at appropriate times. And that's where sometimes it's conversation with sports coaches of how are we coaching these people? How are we um, implementing different strategies with them in the context of, is it a desired outcome so that they actually are performing better? Or is it just something that's happening and is possibly taken away from them? people will go into a valgus position at undesirable times. And it might be that we need to coach them out of it for performance perspective. Um, I'm fortunate here where I get to have that conversation with a basketball coach who uh, works with the college and he comes in and meets with the performance coach and me at the start of the season, we discuss tons of stuff and then we outline a plan together. I know that's not the norm, but I've, out and reached out to the other sport coaches in the past for athletes that have needed it. And most
0: of the time they're quite receptive. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so having that, um, the reframe to the performance element versus, you know, you're going to blow your ACL unless you, you do this correctly. And then also allow, uh, layering on top external constraints as much as possible versus having to mm-hmm. have the client that, or the, the athlete think every time they land, they need to be in correct alignment. With so, so it's not subconscious, they have to consciously think about it during, during a, a game. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of things there. Like
1: the line of um, that thought will convert over from conscious to subconscious. Like there's actually not a strong bout of research showing that we can have that at least in just to movement. Like you just keep teaching someone to do something they just think about it all the time and eventually it becomes natural. There's there's not a lot of that actually agrees with that. And, um, then, um, when we get into like changing people's movement strategies, it doesn't happen very easily. And
0: so good luck. <laughs> yeah. But, like, the value of the external cues and, and constraints versus the yeah. internal, like muscle focused ones. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the biggest one as well that I took away from what you said is there's certain situations, unilateral decelerating um, lateral shifting uh, and rotations that matter most. Perhaps when it comes to other bilateral movements, it doesn't matter as much.
1: Yes. Like if it, if it was a bilateral uh, deceleration from a jump, maybe, yeah, like it definitely could, could matter there. Um, particularly if it's occurring between like zero and 30 degrees. So like if someone is, uh, for instance, in basketball, someone jumps up to catch a rebound and then comes down from that. That's like a more likely situation. Um, but it's probably in basketball. Cause I know a lot about that now. Um, it's more likely that someone will come down, have a contact with another player, then load up one leg more than the other leg. And that's the, usually the leg that will get injured in contrast to like a weightlifter. You know, I don't, see very many situations to where someone hurts their ACL in weightlifting or powerlifting any of these things usually it's going to be a different structure of the knee and if their ACL gets hurt it is a horrific freak accident where something crazy happened and it's not like a little bit of valgus happening like when you're watching the IWF world championships it is not most of these people that are hurting their ACL like that's yeah. Like I've looked at all of the injury rate uh, data
0: on that stuff and I haven't seen a single thing list the ACL. Looks, looks crazy. Right. When they get into those yeah. positions, but yeah. So much safer than perhaps it looks.
1: Yeah. And that's the thing is like, if you, it's always funny cause um, you know, people talk um, you'll hear some people talk about like how anatomy dictates function and that, you know, anatomy is really important. But then a lot of times these people don't even know anatomy very well because if you really look at the structure of the knee and when weightlifters are in an extremely deep um, Knee flex position. The knee has a lot of ability to go into rotation at that position Because like your tibia and like the interface between them allows for much more rotation in a highly flexed position And so like it's just not going to load um, The cruciate ligaments in the
0: same position there Awesome. Is, uh, I draw parallels with the biomechanics research sometimes contradicting biomechanics research so awesome mate we could talk shop for hours i know and um but we got some really great information there and some valuable takeaways so thank you once again for, for making the time for our listeners and sam where if i know there's a few courses coming up so could you give those a plug as long as um you know they're not top secret by any chance <laughs> Nah, uh the easiest thing right now
1: is just watch um, either my Instagram or Facebook, and then you can check out sysathletics.com or e3rehab.com. Uh, anything major from an in-person course standpoint has been put on hold, obviously. So we're trying to figure out some solutions for people and, uh, we'll be announcing tons of stuff in the coming weeks.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Sam, for, for joining us today until next time. Thanks for having me.